welcome everyone to the Persist podcast. It is such an honor to be here today with Dr. Ivy Cargyle, who is an assistant professor of political science at Cal State University, Bakersfield. Dr. Cargyle, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much, Denise. It's such a an, such an, uh, privilege and it's so awesome to be here. I'm really excited. Thank you. I'm excited too. As you know, Ivy, the Persist Women's Political Engagement Conference is entering our fifth year this fall. And one of our main messages is that political engagement is much broader than just running for office or working for an elected official. You're the first faculty member and political scientist that I've had on the show. And I'm so excited to dive into this conversation with you. Let's start by you telling us a bit about yourself and your path into the political science arena. Sure. Well, I, mean, I can't believe it's Persist is already going on its fifth year. That's so fantastic. That's great news. You've done such an amazing job with that conference and growing it every year despite a pandemic. So uh, lots of kudos to you for that. Um, our UCR and the local students in the local area are so lucky to have uh, that kind of a conference. But a little bit about me, uh, let's see. So as you said, I'm an assistant professor of um, political science at Cal State University, Bakersfield. I am um, I'm first generation across the board. So um, first uh, to go to undergrad and also to then go on to get uh, my PhD. Uh, I am a product of the CSUs. I'm very proud of that. I, I got my bachelor's from Cal State University, Fullerton many, many moons ago uh, in criminal justice and then uh, went on. I literally stumbled on the idea of graduate school a couple of years after graduating from undergrad and then uh, ended up going to Claremont Graduate University for a master's in American politics and then a Ph.D. in American politics and public policy. And I mean, in terms of how I landed in in political science, I say stumbled because um, originally, like, you know, many first gen, especially, uh, you know, of of, uh, Latino, Latina, Latinx background, um, my parents are not English speaking. And so I've always had to be a language broker for them. Even as a young child, I would have to figure out how to translate legal documents. And as in a third grader, fourth grader, you're like, I don't even know what this says in English. Right. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, my parents got into a couple of legal issues um, where, you know, they were taken advantage of. And so the dream then was I'm going to go to law school. I'm going to, you know, help people like my parents make sure that they don't get taken advantage of because they don't speak the language. But that didn't work out. Um, I graduated from college and, you know, it just didn't work out for me the way that I needed it to work out. So I kind of was at a I was kind of at a loss. Like, oh, gosh, now what am I going to do? And so it took me a couple of years. I, you know, I was a, a bit older uh, when in terms of the the age range of, of folks that were in my cohort at Claremont. But yeah, I mean, I ended up in, in political science because I needed to figure out something. I needed to do something with my life. I felt like I was getting older and I was like, ah, if I'm going to do something, you know, a terminal degree, I got to figure that out now. But I have to admit, you know, I had no idea even in applying uh, to graduate school what that even meant. Like, I didn't really understand the difference between a master's degree and a Ph.D. I just knew that the Ph.D. was the highest you could go. But what that meant exactly I had no clue. And the worst part about it is that I also didn't know what questions to ask. Mm -hmm. I was definitely that first gen um, and then also embarrassed because I was like, how how am I as old as I am at the time? 
and not know what this is. But I think it's really, I was a product of the fact that no one in my family had done it here in the United States. Um, I didn't really seek mentorship at the undergraduate level like I should have. I did a little bit, so that's how I knew PhDs existed. But um, I should have tapped into uh, uh, my faculty at my, at, 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 uh, my undergraduate institution, and I didn't. Um, and a lot of it having to do with being embarrassed and just, you know, not knowing the language and just being like, I don't know what I'm going to talk to these people about. Like really one of those, I was one of those students that was like, wait, so professors are really people? What? Mm -hmm. uh, they're just like me. And it's like, well, no, they're not. But, you know, at the same time, they are, they were very relatable um, folks that I think I should have tapped into to really find out what a political science PhD entailed. But thankfully, uh, because of the mentorship of, you know, amazing people that you and I both know, particularly Jen Jennifer Marola, who's a prof at UC Riverside and uh, Rachel Vansickle Ward, who's also a professor at um, Pitzer College, their mentorship has been, I, I mean, I just, I tell Jen this all the time, but there's no way that I am here if not for her. Like mm -hmm. I owe her so much along with so many other people. Like I, there's no way that I did this by myself because I had no clue what the heck I was doing. So yeah. it was little, like, so as you can see, like I literally stumbled on, like luckily I stumbled on at a time where there were people there who were like, hey, I think we could work together and then literally taught me the way and were patient despite how much I needed to learn because I knew nothing. Thank you so much for sharing that story with us. So much of that resonates for me as I'm a first-generation college student as well. And especially what you said about not knowing what questions to ask, yeah. right? Like that, that resonates for sure. And I also love that you talked about the importance of mentorship uh, and Jen and Rachel specifically. That's a great segue into my next question for you, which is, you know, you and I, I was so fortunate to cross paths with you via our mutual friend who happens to be who you mentioned, UCR political science professor, Dr. Jennifer Marola. You came to UCR and you joined a panel that we put together after the 2016 presidential election. If I'm remembering correctly, it was analysis uh, of the election from a gendered lens. And then afterwards, we were standing outside in the hallway, Jen and you and me, as well as um, Rachel Van Sickle Ward, professor from Pitzer College. And we were discussing our mutual heartbreak after the 2016 presidential election results and also our deep admiration for Hillary Clinton. This led to us working together on a book that we co-edited and contributed to called The Hillary Effect. It was published last year, and I'm so grateful to have had that experience working alongside you, Ivy. I'm curious to hear about what that process was like for you. This was your first book too, right? Yes. So happy that, I mean, the way that it all happened, right? I was so glad to have been a part of that panel in 2016. It was such a, it was such a way to try to, to mend a, a bit of the broken heart, the heartedness that we felt at the moment, especially given the day that the panel was held. Uh, which was the inauguration day. Um, but yeah, it was a first book. Um, you know, I haven't had the, I have, I haven't taken the leap yet into either doing a solo book or a co-authored book. So the process, I mean, doing it, the idea was great, but I have to admit that I couldn't necessarily, I didn't know what it was going to look like at the very end. And I'm so glad for the the, the leadership uh, and, and mentorship of, of Jen and Rachel, who are book pros, because I was, clueless to the entire process, right? So uh, definitely learned a lot about publishing. And also just, I mean, I think I learned a lot about the camaraderie that still exists with, with women and just um, how it really was 
how 2016 was really impactful. I know that we talk about that and I know that we feel that on different levels, but I think to see how to read and to learn from the different contributors, the meaningfulness of someone like Hillary Clinton just is so heartwarming and it's so it's just, it's emotional. Right. And I'm, I'm really excited about the fact that this book was put together, that there are so many amazing pieces in there that are so thoughtful and are and are so uh, well explained in such a short amount of time or in a short space. And thinking about, you know, just how uh, how readers are going to perceive it, how they're going to take it in and how they're going to think about it for themselves and hopefully see in Hillary Clinton something that they maybe didn't see at the time. Because I think the book just gives so much insight in terms of what she has meant for a lot of women and for little girls, too. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. little boys as well. Absolutely. That was such a powerful process and, and a cathartic and a healing process, I think, for many of us. And I have to say, too, one of the most exciting parts of the book is your interview with Dolores Huerta. Yes, that was such an amazing opportunity. I'm so glad I got I got the chance to to chat with with Dolores Huerta and to hear her process, right? Mm-hmm. To hear her um, going from you know, and first of all, understanding her admiration for Hillary Clinton, right? Because she herself is such an admirable uh, hero in, in in American politics and in American history. So to, to to hear from her how she came to to be such a fan of Dolores of, of me of Hillary Clinton and mm-hmm. hearing from her the importance of representation, right? We, you know, in, in conversations that that you and I have both been in, we talk about the, the power of representation. And for for Dolores Huerta to say that the reason why Hillary Clinton became so uh, such an important person in in how she and how she views American politics was because for the first time, a first lady actually wanted to sit down with non-white and marginalized underrepresented women to hear from them and to hear what to hear about what their their needs and the needs of their community is or were um, and how the Clinton administration that was brand new at the time could help usher that those 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 um, those needs in. Um, That to me was just like uh, it was it was mind blowing. Right. It was emotional. it, It was. I, I was just so uh, taken aback by by how even for someone as huge as as Dolores Huerta, how representation did in fact matter for her as well, and and the fact that this other woman understood certain things of of, of what it is to struggle as a woman in the in, in 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 for social justice, but then also asking for her opinion. Yeah, well said, uh, and I love how you included that in the book. And I and I'll just give one more quick plug for the book. There's so many great essays and many contributors. It's it's such a, a powerful project that we were fortunate to embark upon. So again, it's called The Hillary Effect, and it is out now. Um, Ivy, I want to talk about your current research. You recently had an article published entitled Stereotyping Latinas, Candidate Gender and Ethnicity on the Political Stage. From what I've read, this sounds like a fascinating study. Please tell us more about the motivation to pursue this topic and what you discovered while doing the research. Sure. So first off, this is the last. This is actually a part of my dissertation or it was a part of my dissertation. And so I'm glad to see it, to finally see it out in print uh, because I've been working on it for a couple of years, even after I graduated. So I'm really excited for it to be out. And really what I'm trying to understand, I think just in general, is how do we make the halls of government be more representative? 
uh, in terms of gender and in terms of ethno race and gender. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm really moved and, and motivated by understanding particularly the role that Latinas um, play in this in, in, in this political system system in terms of not just being political candidates and not just in terms of being politicians, but also as voters. So, you know, how across the board, the, the three different types of subgroups of Latinas, how, how this all works, right? Um, and so the, the, what the project is looking at is it's looking at Latina, generic Latina candidates and how it is that people who who might be voting for them, how they how they perceive them, how they think about them, what characteristics do they attach to a Latina the candidate who, to some extent, is one of the newer subgroups of women that is coming onto the political stage. Um, and the reason why I think this is important is because we know there's there's you know numbers of studies, and I think they, that we looked harder at them in the aftermath of the 2016 election. Um, in terms of we, we know that when voters look at particular candidates, they're looking at certain character traits, right? Is this person electable? Well, what does it mean that they're electable? Well, do they display leadership qualities? Okay, well that turns into, are they assertive, right? Are they um, warm and compassionate? Are they charismatic? All of those different, you know, labels uh, in general that we, that we heard about Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump in 2016. And so that, you know, we know still also that typically the prototypical candidate is still considered a man. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, a Latina isn't that. A Latina not only isn't a man, she also is not a white woman for that matter, right? Mm -hmm. So um, with that, looking at that intersection, when voters are possibly looking at her, if, if, if she happens to be one of the candidates for any level of office, what are they thinking about her? Do they think she can lead? Do they think she can actually, you know, get to office and 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 do uh, and and fulfill the duties of the job? Um, and so that's what I'm looking at in the study. And, and I'm just comparing generic candidates. Uh, so there's no, no no actual names attached to anyone, so that I don't, you know, I didn't prime any kind of already negative or positive ideas uh, about any particular politician. And what I find is. It was really interesting, actually. I think that on the one hand, uh, it matters who the possible voters are. So when looking at um, voters who identify as Latino, Latina, Latinx, and voters who are white, there's different evaluations of a Latina candidate with more favorable evaluations um, and characteristic um, attachments by members of her own co-ethnic community. So Latino, Latina, uh, Latin, Latinx is excuse me, are seeing her in a more favorable light than, let's say, a white voter. And so I think I think it's important for for us to continue looking at that because we are seeing more women run for political office. We are seeing more uh, non-white women run for political office in places that you wouldn't expect. Right. In places like Wisconsin, in places like uh, like like Georgia, in places like Virginia. Uh, and so, you know, we normally think of Latino, Latina, Latinx is running in the southwest, perhaps maybe in the east coast. But now they're, they're running in, in different states where, you know, there hasn't been as much uh, as, there hasn't been as much exposure uh, to you know members of this community uh, by you know to to white voters. So that's really what I'm trying to get at. Really trying to figure out how to help a, a Latina candidate run a successful campaign at some point, right? Like provide one little bit of, of knowledge uh, to her camp to, to her campaign manager in regards to okay, how do you present her so that she she has she can elicit the idea that yes, she has those leadership qualities.
I love that so much. This sounds like really interesting and important research, especially when, you know, we've, we've talked a lot about gender and politics, but I think it's so important to bring in that intersectional lens as you're doing in your research, right? Because it's, you're absolutely right. There's, there's a huge difference between how voters perceive a white woman versus a Latina candidate, right? And even on this show, we've had some really great interviews. We interviewed uh, Councilwoman Gabby Placencia from the city of Riverside, first Latina on the council. Yeah. Within her first year, uh, there's already been a recall campaign lodged against her, and she's really had an uphill battle so far. She's beaten that recall campaign and um, is a tremendous example of, of strength and resiliency in the role, but you know, has had significant challenges being the first Latina on the council. Same with Fazia Rizvi, who is uh, the first Muslim elected official in the inland Southern California region. She talked to us, I think in episode two, and gave a really compelling story about how hard it was for her to run as a Muslim candidate and the challenges that she faced. So thank you for doing this research. It's hugely important, especially as we, you know, as we grow the table of who is in elected office and we're actively working to engage women of color and more diverse candidates going forward. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I definitely, I can only imagine how challenging it must've been for those two women that you just mentioned in terms of, you know, being able to take that first step uh, to run, you know, cause that's the other thing too, right? When you run for political office, it's not just you that becomes a public figure. It's also your family and it's also the people who are around you and, you know, having to factor all of those different variables into the equation of whether or not you're going to take that, pl- you're going to take that next step. You know, it's, it's harrowing to hear uh, mm-hmm. that, you know, the, the, there are still, there are, there still are a lot of challenges that these women are facing, even though what they want to do is they want to serve the public, mm-hmm. right. Um, in a time where serving the public is actually has, I think maybe one of the more, most difficult times in our country's uh, recent history um, and that they're still willing to step up and do it and then still have to face these challenges is really unfortunate. But part of what in my research, I'm trying to figure out what that all means. Yeah, thank you for that. I couldn't agree more. Speaking of politics at the national level, I'm curious to know your thoughts on how the U.S. has changed since the 2016 presidential election. I know that we could spend hours on this alone, but specifically, I'm curious to know your thoughts on the prevalence of misinformation, disinformation campaigns and what they've done to American society and also where do we go from here? Is there a way out? And is the Biden-Harris administration providing that? That's a doozy. So I definitely think this is a tough one because post-2016, uh, we are learning in real time um, the cliche that if you say a lie enough times, it actually can become truth. Um, and, you know, especially if it's said not only enough times, but by certain by certain opinion leaders who people, you know, then, uh, you know, who, who people put on pedestals. And no doubt, it's, it's very much the case that misinformation and disinformation is wreaking havoc, not just in U.S. politics, but global politics as well, right? I, I think it's super interesting to, to take a look at, you know, situations in other countries who are also facing similar challenges to what we are, with the small exception of, you know, the presence of someone like a Donald Trump, for, for, for example. 
And there's just so much mistrust that is that, that we are seeing. And, and it's hard to think about how we get out of this. Um, there there is a, there is a solution, um, but it's I don't know what it is um, and I don't know at what point we arrive at it. But my big fear is that it doesn't my big fear is if it doesn't come in time before something even more dangerous than the January 6th insurrection happens. As there are, I mean, you know, just think in the news, hearing about how, you know, the couple of different foiled plans that the FBI um, has been able to to take down um, in regards to, you know, because it's being led by people who are still under the belief that, you know, Donald, that Donald Trump's election was stolen from him in 2020. Right. I think in terms of like your question in regards to how has post-2016 what has changed? I mean, I don't know that we this isn't something we've ever seen before. Right. A, a, a former candidate, former president who is convincing, whether it be a small base, but still a, ba- a group of people that he is the actual winner and that there has to be that the only way that he doesn't win is if is because everybody worked, everybody worked in unison to make sure that he didn't win, that the election was stolen from him. So like the huge mistrust in our uh, national institutions, I don't think we've ever seen levels this high of distrust Mm -hmm. in everything, right? And so I think that one of the ways, and you know, maybe you you can label this a cop-out if you want, but I think one of the ways that only one of the ways that I can think of that we get out of this is we need stronger civic education, mm-hmm. right? We need our K-12 and, and higher education. We all need to make a concerted effort to really help our young Americans understand uh, what the Constitution is, what it says, what it does, what it does not do. Because I think part of the problem, part of the issue is we don't understand the difference between politics and government, and we don't understand what government is supposed to do and how it's supposed to do it and and what the different steps are like. Norms are no longer um, respected. Yeah, they're just no longer respected. And and that's that's a problem. Um, Mm -hmm. We need to figure out a way how to educate our our young our young people so that they understand what government is and what it does. I mean, I think it's so ironic that, you know, one of the biggest exports that this country has is democracy. We think about any, a lot of the wars that have been fought, they've been fought in the name of democracy in one way or another, right? So it's one of the biggest exports. And yet we have so many people who live in this country who don't actually understand what a democracy is, what it looks like and how it functions. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that we've had that kind of level, that level, that, I don't know that we've had that level of, lack of information at a time where we literally carry little computers in our pockets and in our purses. And yet we still don't, we have such a very, we have such a small understanding of what, you know, a democracy and particularly a representative democracy should look like. And so that, I mean, you know, to your question of how do we get out of this again, all I can think and all I can think of is this idea that we need stronger civic education across the board uh, we can't leave uh, U.S. government to, you know, the first or the second semester of senior year. Like we really need to, you know, we really need to strengthen the minds of our uh, of our young folks that are going to that are attending American schools, because I think part of the, you know, a lot of the education cuts 
a lot of what we're seeing right now has to do with the lack of resources that we have we have been willing as Americans to let local governments and local school boards cut uh, because, you know, there's no there, there's no there's no money. Um, so, yeah. And I mean, in terms of, you know, our our Biden, is the Biden and Biden Harris administration helping us get out of it? I think they want to. But I, I think that they you know, we're all seeing just how difficult this is. And I think it's, you know, the way that they are the different bills that they're trying to get passed, right? So the infrastructure bill that's going to be that's going to be debated soon, the human infrastructure bill that the Democrats are trying to pass, uh, the different pandemic aid packages that have been uh, rolled out. I think part of what the Biden administration is Biden Harris administration are trying to do is look. This is how government is supposed to work for you at your time of need. Boom. Here is you know the pandemic aid. Here is here are the different you know the different things that you need to, to make sure that you and your family are safe. And this is how government should work. And it shouldn't work the way that you were told in 2016. And, and, and you know, uh, you, you, you're being told by by uh, other media outlets that that's how it should be. So they're trying to they're trying to get their way out of it by, you know, by showing, I guess, not just talking the talk, but walking the walk. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if that's enough. Right. Because I think that looking at public opinion polls, you know, in 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 very conservative uh, areas, uh, where people are receiving these these benefits are still not you know making the connection or not wanting to make the connection that mm-hmm. you know this is how government should work as opposed to you know we should really be you know getting rid of these people and putting in the people who actually lost. Wow, that was a powerful response to a bundle of questions. I appreciate that, and I agree with you. I think civic education is the way forward. You know, I was afraid that there wouldn't be a response to that, but I think you're absolutely brilliant. And right on to say civic education would really do a world of difference. And and we absolutely need that, especially for young people as soon as possible. We we really do. I mean, I think it's really interesting that, you know, at some universities, you know, the universities across the board, across the U.S. have different requirements. Right. But I think, you know, I've been at institutions in other states where, you know, taking an intro to American politics and government class is not a requirement for graduation. So students will have graduated from these institutions with a college degree and have no sense whatsoever of what government institutions are and how they function Mm -hmm. and what the differences are between the branches and national and state levels of government. And that's frightening, right? I think part of why we are where we are right now is because we don't have strong civic education. The other thing is that this isn't going to be right away. Right. So let's just say we start implementing stronger civic standards. It's going to be a while for us to see what the effects of that is, because even, you know, where we are right now, it didn't happen just in 2016. Right. There has been an erosion of trust in government. There has been an erosion of our education requirements over decades at this point. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, actually, one of the projects I'm working on right now is I'm trying to start a youth council in the city of Redland. Oh, it's so cool. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I'm hoping that it will get off the ground very shortly. And I've seen other cities and counties do this, um, but maybe, maybe not enough across the board. But I'm really, I'm excited to engage a wide variety of high school students. And I suspect there will be the students from like, student government, you know, or speech and yeah. debate who would like to join. But I really want to make this as broad as possible and engage the students in, you know, in the, in the activist clubs and the four change clubs, right. And students who are, you know, working with academic case carriers because they're experiencing 
homelessness or their foster youth, like we really need to start expanding our outreach efforts when it comes to civic uh, education, because I think that oftentimes, and you know this too, um, people who are impacted the most are the ones who should be at the table. And that's where we see real change start to happen. So thank you for that response. And I'm hoping that we can get some good civic engagement programs off the ground shortly. I'm definitely going to be paying attention to how you do that because, you know, based on how on, on how it works for you, I might be able to, I might steal your idea and, and thinking about how to do that in Bakersfield as well, because that would be fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Let's definitely keep in touch and, and yeah. chat about that. Switching gears a bit, you know, when I was doing a, a search of you to prepare for this interview, I was pleasantly surprised to see that you're a fairly regular contributor to 23ABC News Bakersfield, and you're often on Telemundo as well. I'm curious to know, how did these opportunities come about? Uh, what are your thoughts on getting your work out there in these platforms that are often more engaging and accessible to a wider audience? Yeah, so I, it's definitely uh, it's definitely a concerted effort, right? So these opportunities for me um, at the local level came about because of other department colleagues, two, three other department colleagues in the political science department uh, at the time that I arrived in 2016 were also doing media. And um, as soon as it was really interesting, as soon as I got there, they started throwing media, con- you know, media uh, contacts out to me. And so it just, that's, that's, that's where it happened, right? So it's, Bakersfield is a is a small, big community, a small, large community in that they still they still think they're a small town, but really they're not. They're actually they're they are a growing uh, metropolitan area. And um, as a result, you 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 see that there is starting to be a lot more engagement, particularly with the university uh, and the and the faculty. Uh, the faculty at the university across the board in uh, at all different parts of the community, including the media. Um, and so in terms of the media now turning more to the university for expertise on different things like politics, economic development, the environment and things like that, we're really starting to see CSUB's um, name grow in that that area. So that's that's so that's really neat. And, and one of the reasons is because of people like my department chair, for example, uh, Dr. Mark Martinez. He was very he was very excited when I came on board with the fact that I am fully bilingual because Spanish is my first language. And so um, once he's once he learned that, he immediately started throwing Univision and Telemundo at me. And, you know, luckily, you know, it's, it's caught on. And, I, and I'm very excited to be able to not only contribute to English language media um, and help out my colleagues in that area when it comes to issues of race and gender and, and American politics, but also being able to take that information and take that knowledge and translate it into Spanish so that, you know, people who are, who are Spanish speakers can also understand and also be aware of what is going on. You know, Bakersfield and Kern County is over 50% Latino, Latina, Latinx, and we don't have very many faculty members who are fully bilingual. Uh, and so to be in a position where I can bring any, any type of important information uh, when it comes to elections, when it comes to the, any, you know, uh, any policy issues that the country or that the the state or the county is facing, I'm more than happy to do because I know that that's one way that our community, our Latino, Latino, Latinx community gets gets information. So it's definitely a privilege and, and I'm super humbled to be able to have the opportunities to bring that information to them. Absolutely. That's so powerful. Thank you for doing that. And thank you for sharing with us. 
And we, we talked a little bit um, in your intro and how you got into college and politics. You talked about being a first-generation college student. You obviously went on to earn a doctorate. You've spent your career thus far working in academia. What advice do you have, especially for first-gen college students who dream of being a professor one day? I say do it. We need a, we definitely need a more and diverse voices in the academy. But before you do it, do it with your eyes as wide open as you possibly can. And of course, there's no way that you're going to know absolutely everything that there is to know about what it'll take to you know, get on path to get a particular degree in order to be a part of a certain profession. But I highly, highly, highly recommend that if folks are in, if undergrads are interested in this idea of becoming a professor and joining the academy, definitely tap your sources, right? And your sources are your faculty members at the undergraduate level. Go to office hours and do and ask them for the opportunity to do an informational interview with them where you ask them, where you're able to ask them, you know, what their process was as an undergraduate and then what how that led them to their graduate work, why they became professors, what does it take to become a professor if they if they were at a position where they could do it again, would they, you know, just any and every question that you could possibly think of, use your undergraduate faculty. They, you know, if you if you go to office hours, I'm sure a lot of them will be more than happy to, to talk to you about this. I've had a couple of students who have done that with me and I thoroughly enjoy it. And it not only allows them to get to know me on a different level but it allows me to also ask them questions. And so whenever opportunities come across my desk or my my inbox about, you know, getting, you know, an opportunity to go to the university of so-and-so for a summer to go do undergraduate research. And I know they're interested in that. I can send that opportunity their way. So informational interviews, going to office hours and talking to faculty really does allow us as faculty to, to know what students' interests are so that then we can help them, whether it be with fellowships, internships, scholarships, whatever it may be. But in regards to becoming a professor, I would just say, you know, try to ask as many questions as you possibly can from as many different people that have done it as you can, because not everyone's process is going to be the same. But, you know, if you get a variety of voices that have given you information about the process, you can then decide for yourself whether it makes sense for you to pursue this dream or this, this goal, or if maybe you want to, you know, go in a different direction. Um, Mm -hmm. But if at the end of the day, if this is something you're interested in, please do it. We need, we need all the voices we can that we can get in the academy. Definitely. That's such great advice. What are your favorite courses to teach and what is it like teaching at Cal State University Bakersfield? I am so lucky that I so far have gotten to teach a bulk, a bulk of what I research. So um, I, I get to teach three particular courses are my favorite, but I will say that I am also in the process of developing other courses. So of course this might change over time. Um, I really enjoy teaching women in politics. It's always a lot of fun to teach that class. Um, And I get to teach that at least once a year, every year. Um, I also teach immigration politics, which I love. And then I also got to teach, I also get to teach a unique class, which is Latinos and Blacks in American politics. So it's, it's two, we're looking at, the political development and engagement and process of both the, the, the Black community as well as the Latino, Latina, Latinx community, which of course means that we're going hyperspeed. But at the same time, I think I, I really enjoy it because it brings in students that I, would, I wouldn't normally have and allows me to be able to really discuss the idea of working together and multi-ethnic, multi-racial coalitions 
uh, in a way that I think that just a black politics class or a Latino, Latina, Latinx politics class might not allow me to do. So these three courses right now are my babies. I, I adore teaching them. And, you know, I'm hoping that I'm able to continue doing so in the future, in addition to other courses that I will be looking to uh, to teach in the future and develop uh, for, for the department. To your second question of, of what is it like to teach at Cal State University Bakersfield, it's it's a lot of fun. So I, you know, as I said earlier, I went to Cal State University Fullerton when I was an undergrad. And it's, you know, going to now then to, to CSUB and seeing, you know, how different Cal States are. Cal State University Bakersfield is uh, considered a Latino, Latina, Latinx serving institution because we are over 50, over 25 percent Latino, Latina, Latinx enrolling. And a lot of our students come from the area. And, but by that, I mean, right, Bakersfield and the surrounding cities, um, even as far even as far out as Fresno County, even though Fre- Fres- they, you know, Fresno County has Fresno State. Um, so we really I, we, I get to see uh, a different diverse types of students. You know, I get students who are farm workers who, you know, who work in the farms with their parents. I get to see students who are, you know, uh, who are who are second generation immigrant, just like I was or first gen students. I just get to see such a diverse group of students that I really, really do enjoy teaching there. Even though we are a a Latino, Latina, Latinx serving institution, we still don't have as much diverse faculty as we should, I think, given where we're located. So it is also a privilege to be able to be at the institution and show our young Latinas that being in the academy is an option because, hello, uh, you know, I'm here. And, uh, you know, some of my other colleagues uh, who are also Latino, Latina, Latinx, um, you know, we can serve as a group of faculty that can show these students uh, that they can be just, you know, that what, first we were once where they are and now, you know, thankfully look at where we are and, and, and that they can be there too. So it's a lot of fun to teach there. We do a lot of, we are encouraged to work a lot with the community. And so that's why your idea of, you know, doing the, the, the youth council is so intriguing because that would definitely be something that, um, you know, would, would be of such benefit in, in, in Bakersfield um, because, you know, we have a great group of students that, you know, uh, we would love to be able to bring in and not just bring into the council, but then also then bring into CSUB. So, you know, there's also a, <laughs> uh, there's also self-interest there in terms of being able to recruit more students. <laughs> I love that. Uh, Dr. Ivy Cargo, this has been such a powerful interview. I appreciate that. And we always end the Persist podcast with the same question, which is, and I know you've given a lot of great advice thus far in the interview, but if you could give one piece of advice to our listeners, especially college students thinking about getting involved in the political arena more broadly, what would that be? Um, I would say to definitely get involved. We need more people to be, we need more people engaged. Do it around an issue that is a passion uh, for you. Do it around an issue that really is important and motivates you because it's that passion behind the issue. It's that motivation that's going to keep you going when things get challenging. And believe me, they're going to get challenging because nothing, nothing never does. So I would say definitely get involved, but make sure that it's around something that you really do enjoy uh, doing and that it's also with people that, you know, that 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 are good to you and that you can be good to so that, you know, it can it can turn out to be a fruitful uh, relationship. Wonderful advice. Thank you so much for this conversation, Ivy. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the, the opportunity. 
The Persist podcast is hosted by me, Denise Davis, director of the UCR Women's Resource Center, and is produced by Rosa Tejeda and the staff in the UCR Women's Resource Center. Check out our Instagram pages for links to more episodes at UCRWRC and at UCR Persist. If you'd like to sign up for our newsletter, please email us at wrc at ucr.edu. We hope that this podcast inspires you and those around you to get involved in the political arena because we know that who is at the table absolutely matters. Finally, if you have any ideas for who a future guest should be on the podcast, feel free to reach out and let us know. 